This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. Much of the continental United States is rapidly desertifying. One of the hottest, driest areas in the United States is the Salton Sea Imperial Valley area just east of Los Angeles. On the hottest days, this area can blow hot, dry winds toward Los Angeles, causing record heat and causing hospitalization and death. My guest, Roger Savory, says he can solve this problem. Let's listen to what he has to say. Roger Savory is an ecologist who is focused on turning deserts into grasslands. Roger is director of Savory Holistic, which utilizes livestock to turn deserts into grasslands that have a positive impact on the climate, water quality, and wildlife. He's now proposing to restore a desert in Southern California, and we'll be talking about his hopes for this project. Roger, how are you today? I'm good. Even when I'm bad, I'm good. Thanks for asking. (laughs) Hey, what's your secret? Tell me your secret. Um, Positive mental attitude. There we go. Roger, you've turned deserts into grasslands all over the world, including Africa, Australia, and North America. Now you propose to create a grassland from a desert in Southern California. What would you like for people to know about your proposed project? Um, Thanks for having me on and and thanks for asking the question. I think primarily um, what I, um, the reason I chose the Salton Sea area um, is I actually look for the worst spot that I could find in America. Um, And, and the, the Imperial Valley and Salton Sea is, is basically the worst spot. It's got one of the lowest rainfalls in the country, one of the hottest heat indexes. Um, it's got uh, huge dust storms. Uh, I think the lo- local native population in the area, I think their children have about 30% asthma um, rate. Um, so I really wanted to find the worst of the worst because if we can um, work with people and show people that um, these principles work in the worst of the worst, then I'm hoping that that will diffuse many arguments of, of, of um, you know, humans always look for excuses as to why they can't do something. You know, when I first brought these ideas from um, Africa back to America, everyone said, oh, that'll work in Africa, it won't work here for this, this, this reason. Then I went up to Canada. Oh, that'll work in America. It won't work here for this, this, this reason. Then I went to Australia and, oh, that'll work there, but it won't work here because uh, we, you know, we, didn't ha- uh, we only have arthropods. You know, humans always look for excuses as to why something won't work. I don't know what it is about us. Um, so I wanted to find the worst of the worst that I can find of the 800 million acres of desert in America currently um, because if we can uh, work with communities and show people, well, this works here, then it will be much more difficult for pushback to gain traction and for us to waste more years in disbelief. Roger, your organization is in competition for the Carbon X Prize, 
According to the Carbon X Prize website, this four-year global competition invites innovators to create and demonstrate solutions that can pull carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere. What motivated you to enter this competition and why do you think your team has a serious chance of winning? So um, firstly, just uh, my sense of humor, if you look at when I entered our team, Deserts to Grasslands Feeding the Future, it's at 23.59 is when we entered, as in one minute before the deadline for entry. Now, the reason uh, it was entered one minute before the deadline for entry, even though they gave about three months of lead up time, was because I was desperately hoping that someone else would enter. Um, and nobody put their hand up and nobody. And all over the world, I mean, we've got tens of thousands of people who practice and manage holistically. We've got huge institutions. We've got the Savory Institute. We've got Holistic Management International. We've got these global organizations. And I was hoping that they would stick their hand up because they have been teaching and showing people that just by managing holistically, harnessing the power of nature, um, getting the solar energy um, flow from solar energy to plants grown to food produced, they have been sequestering carbon globally for many years. Um, so anyone in the know knows that it works. So I was waiting for someone in the know to enter a team and no one did. So finally I, I entered a team and as soon as I'd done that and posted it on Facebook, everyone said, oh, great, wonderful, thanks, fantastic. You know, we were waiting for someone to do it. So it was one of those situations of no one wanted to put their hand up. And so, uh, so I drew the short straw and, and put my hand up. Um, and there's an old saying, be careful what you wish for, for one day you shall receive it. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it's interesting that there was no competition among the people who believe that this is the best solution for drawing down carbon. Roger, you've lived on a mountain range that stands between Los Angeles and the Imperial Valley. You've seen it rain on one side, but not the other. What's going on there? So um, basically physics. Um, so we've got, um, uh, we've got a situation where the cool air comes off, off the ocean and uh, it comes on shore and it creates clouds and, and, and rainfall conditions. And then in the Imperial Valley, from, from mountain range to mountain range, we've got this huge bare um, rock sand, you know, just this huge bare area that's just baking. So, for example, if you've got um, soil covered with mulch, the ground temperature might be about 80 or 90 degrees. But... Uh, at the same time that where there's mulch, it might be 80 or 90 degrees, we find temperatures in excess of 140 degrees um, on rock. I mean, I don't need to teach you this. Uh, anyone can go and walk outside and stand on the hot tarmac or hot concrete and burn their feet. But if, but if they stand on the lawn, they're not going to burn their feet. So, so we've got this massive area of millions of acres like that. Now, from the Imperial Valley up towards the mountains, towards Julian and and uh, and uh, Riverside and all, all of the California coastal area, it's a very steep, uh, almost vertical cliff face. Now, what that means is we all know hot air rises, but when you've got this hot air from the valley that's been supercharged, 
and superheated by the sun. And now it has only op one option and that's to rise. It will naturally rise up towards the, the cliff faces. And those cliff faces are all solid rock from the valley to the, to the mountaintop is solid rock. Uh, there's, there's no vegetation. Well, I say no, hardly any vegetation. And so it's being heated even as it's going up. So now you get these jet, these jet blasters of hot air blowing vertically mm -hmm. and the clouds hit that jet blaster and they have no option but to evaporate. Mm -hmm. So when they evaporate, no rain comes over. And so, so it's, it's a vicious cycle because it's hot in the valley no rain can fall. Mm -hmm. Because no rain can fall, it's hot in the valley. So we have to think about how do we break that cycle? How do we get the ground cooler so that we don't have that uh, extreme heat blowing vertically, pushing the clouds back? And ultimately, when the big winds come, it blows vertically and it blows over and it blows into the cities along the coast. So, um, uh, and, and historical records show that it didn't used to be like that. There's pollen records and stuff showing that there was a lot of vegetation and a lot of different vegetation um, in the area. So we know that this is, um, is basically a human-created desert and not necessarily by Western humans. It could have been much earlier humans that created the desert. Well, let's say you're charged with the management of attractive land that is, for example, 5,000 acres. This 5,000 acres is currently desert land and you're going to turn it into a grassland. What do you do first and then next? Uh, so first you bring everybody involved, all stakers involved in for a discussion about how do we want our lives to be. And if we want to live in a desert, well, then we say, great, and we leave. However, if people say, no, we'd actually like to have biodiversity and we'd be able to, like to be able to feed our families and we'd like clear flowing streams and we wouldn't like dust in the air, and we'd like healthy air. Um, and if we describe, um, you know, a, you know a, a, a biodiverse region with plants and ground cover um, and basically a healthy ecosystem, then we will begin to make management decisions towards achieving it. Um, now, for the biological carpeting process, the first bit of that would be um, uh, contracts with the farmers to the north and south of the Salton Sea for them to grow a very biodiverse uh, forage mix um, uh, uh, to feed livestock with. And then the second part would be um, sourcing the livestock to put on the property, um, getting um, some, we need some technology, we need uh, shade cloth with misters. And, uh, and what I call portable eggmobile um, umbrellas to keep the livestock cool uh, in the heat of the sun because it is, it is ridiculously hot out there. Um, and then we need the chickens to scratch the dung to keep all the maggots and flies out. Um, so, so they're part of the system. And then the misting just generally cools the ambient air temperature. Um, and then once we've got all that infrastructure in place, then we literally just start cutting the forage that we've grown um, from the farmers, having it delivered to the cattle, and we literally just feed them in the desert. But we feed them in, in the desert uh, in a special way, feed them, water them, so that, um, so that they're always kind of just gently moving forward um, and so that we don't get, um, we don't get a CAFO type of situation. 
Um, you know, uh, anything is poisonous if you have too much of it, um, but can be very beneficial if you have just the right amount. So over about 30 years, I've figured out what's just the right amount of dung and urine on the soil to shield and protect the soil from ultraviolet light and begin that process of, of healing the desert. So do you, you, you sow the seed mix first and then the cattle come in later. You, you don't like run the cattle and then sow, and fertilize and then sow the seeds. No, it's two different operations. Okay. So um, the, the food is grown for the cattle. Then the cattle have to eat it. We don't actually care what we do because we want good, healthy cattle. But what we really care about for turning a desert back into a grassland is the four hooves and one um, um, dung producer that each animal has. Um, those are the key ingredients. The hooves are needed to break up the crusting. Uh, much of the desert has a four to six inch crust and it's like concrete. Mm -hmm. So we've got to break that up. We've got to get organic matter mixed into it. And then we've got to get it shielded from the sunlight so that the mycelium and, uh, and fungi can start doing their magic. Only once we can have healthy fungi networks below ground, only then can life start returning and, and regenerate. So we have to create the conditions for fungi to uh, benefit. And we all know mushrooms grow warm, wet, and dark. Well, a desert is not wet. It's not warm. It's extremely hot. And it's not dark. It's bright and, and sunny. So we have to create warm, wet, and dark. And then the life cycle can begin. So over the course of the first and second year, what could people expect to see? Uh, either amazing results or nothing at all. Um, and now the reason I say that is because once we've laid the biological carpet down, then, um, then we have to wait for rainfall. Mm. Now, um, there, uh, yeah, we could wait three, four, five, six, seven years for rainfall. Or like this year, it rained, I mean, it just rained buckets. I think they got four inches a couple of weeks ago. So we have to get the carpet down first and then wait, wait for rainfall. Now, um, the worst droughts in California, we've always had at least some rainfall. There's never been a totally dry year, um, but uh, you know, it's nature, we're, we're dealing with nature. Now, what I do expect is because we've got the carpet laid down, at 5,000 acres, we're not really gonna have an impact. But um, when people see that it's working and government gives us permission to do it on a bigger scale and the community and the society and the nation asks us to do it on a bigger scale, we, uh, we can easily do about 150,000 acres a year. Um, and a decade later, we'd have one and a half million acres of cooled ground. At that point, I expect to see significant weather pattern changes. The research from around the world shows that 150,000 acres, we do start to see weather pattern changes. So, uh, and we can do that in one year if we have permission to do it. Financially, it works very well um, to do 150,000 acres a year. So as part of your process of turning deserts into grasslands, you propose to create a biological carpet. That's an interesting term. What is the biological carpet and why is that something you want to create? So the biological carpet uh, is a term I, I, I coined um, to describe what conditions we need to jumpstart jump life cycles. 
Um, I didn't realize it for a, a long time. Yeah, the penny didn't drop. Um, but um, when I was analyzing why when we did biological carpeting, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't work, it wasn't until we made the discovery that ultraviolet light was the enemy. And we had to totally stop ultraviolet light. Um, and that was connected to um, learning that bacteria form in layers in the soil. And the bacteria that live in the top and the fungi that live in the top millimeter of soil only live in the top millimeter of soil. The ones that live in the second millimeter only live in the second millimeter and you can keep on going down the profile. Um, so we didn't understand that. Once we understood that, we realized, oh, without getting the top millimeter fixed, we can't fix the next and the next. But ultraviolet light was killing the microorganisms in the top millimeter. So the biological carpet is literally, we've just got to get a carpet of life that is thick enough to completely block ultraviolet light. And when we get that, then the life can start in that top millimeter and that triggers the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. Um, and uh, and, and it's, it's, it's the bacteria fungi um, combination. The fungi tap on a seed that's in the soil. And when they tap on the seed, then the seed knows it can germinate. If the signal doesn't come from the mycelium to germinate, the plant will just lie there waiting and we've uh, found um, seeds in soil that are 2,600 years old. That means for 2,600 years, they didn't find the right conditions to germinate. However, when we gave them the right conditions to germinate in a lab, they germinated and plants started growing. So it really shows that they, the plants can wait an extraordinary length of time for the right conditions to germinate and when the right conditions come uh, they germinate i was just talking to a rancher in in the chowan desert in mexico this morning and he's gone from three species of perennial grasses on his ranch to he's up to 50 new unknown perennial grasses growing on his ranch um and so you know that's the same desert they, that they've ranched for you know 150 years that is now coming back to life. So, so these principles are pretty universal. We've seen this evidence um, all over the world. So the biological carpet is just to protect the soil microorganisms from ultraviolet light so that, they, so that life can start growing. Now, when in the 30 years of experiments, if I made the biological carpet too thick, we had to wait a couple of years for it to break down. It was too rich. If we made it too thin, the sunlight got through, the, the UV got through. So there is kind of a sweet spot. Um, and uh, and uh, so it's not something that you can do without experience, but I encourage everyone to experiment for themselves and figure out where that sweet spot is. This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. So uh, you've mentioned the importance of fungi. So fungi are often neglected and misunderstood in farming, ranching, and ecological restoration. What special role do fungi play in the process of turning deserts into grasslands? Um, 
you know, so when I was in school, we had the, um, the plant and the animal kingdom. We didn't even know fungi existed. Um, and uh, when I was in college, we still had the plant and the animal kingdom. And now we at least admit that there's the plant, animal, and fungi kingdom. But uh, our knowledge base of it is extremely limited. Now, my excitement with the fungi kingdom is we all know that fungi rot things. And we all know that to have a life cycle, you've got to have birth, growth, death, and decay. Well, decay, well, that's the fungi's role. What we didn't realize was that birth is also the fungi's role. So if the fungi are not sending out messages to plants um, to germinate and start growing, the birth doesn't even begin. So we can't have decay and we can't have birth without fungi. Now, we kind of know that, but we don't know that. So if you buy legume seeds as a crop farmer, it's quote unquote inoculated. Mm. All that means is we've put fungi with it. So, so we do know it, but we don't connect the dots. <clears throat> but it's not just fungi seed. Um, it's, it's, it's all the seeds kind of require uh, the, the fungi connection. So for me, uh, I'm you know, around 50 years old now. For me, I've gone from eh, fungi to no, concentrate on the fungi. If we get the fungi right, even though we can't see the things, when we get the mycelial networks right, I keep observing that we get the fungi first and then we see, um, see uh, things come right. Now, where this was first demonstrated to me was one of the first biological carpets um, that I did really successfully, that really shook, shook, shook me as a researcher, was in Zimbabwe, we put down the biological carpet and about two weeks later, the first rains came. And it was just fascinating to watch because the first thing that happened was dung beetles buried all the dung. And then the second thing that happened was a carpet of different fungi, German, uh, fruit heads, fruiting bodies came up. Now, when I say a, a carpet, I... I didn't know much about fungi at the time, so I didn't research them. I didn't tabulate them. I didn't do anything. But in my mind's eye, if I had to guess how many different species of fungi germinated on, on this one biological carpet, I would guess it was over a thousand different species. There were little blue ones, little pink ones, yellow ones. You know, there were big white ones. There were brown ones. They, it was just the sea of fungi. Um, and then the fungi all shriveled, wilted, and they were done. And then about 10 days uh, from 10 days after the rain, then it turned into a chia pet of fresh, fresh new forage um, germinating and growing. And then six weeks later, the, the, the village woman uh, in the area, they started yelling and screaming and they were all excited because a grass that they hadn't seen since they were children was suddenly there visible um, and, and, and available. So that was kind of the first, and that was uh, 15 now. So that was about 20 years ago. That was the first time I saw this absolutely distinct, undeniable connection between fungi and then the grasses starting to germinate. So that's when I started to concentrate on, on it and pay attention. 
So fungi are not just involved in uh, decay, but also birth or the emergence of, of, of plants. Yes, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that uh, fungi are both the signal for birth and the, and the uh, instigators of decay. And we probably growth lot. and uh, yeah, probably growth as well. Birth, growth, death. Sure. And, and, you know, fungi help plants utilize nutrients more efficiently. We know that. Yeah. And they help, you know, communication between plants and delivery of nutrients and water. Yeah. Well, you say that. Um, so there's a, there's one fungi um, that's known about that pumps, um, water from like 90 feet down back up to the surface to trade it with plants for sugars. Mm. So I, I, they, 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 I, I think, I really believe fungi hold the planet together. Right. And well, I think we've ignored them for far too long. You know, they, in a sense, they look like plants to our untrained eyes, but they also, you know, they're, they're the reverse of the oxygen carbon dioxide cycle. Plants take in the oxygen and put out carbon dioxide. Fungi, just the fungi, just like animals, they take in oxygen and, and give out carbon dioxide. So um, you can see how they have, have a special role to play in places where animals can't, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. We talk a lot about the global climate, the, but you also emphasize microclimates. What is a microclimate and how does it work? Um, so, uh, yeah, when we were in school, we all learned about the water cycle. You know, the, the water evaporates off the ocean, blows over the mountains, falls, and goes back into the streams and back to the ocean. Well, <laughs> we didn't describe that hot wind causing it to evaporate, so that it actually doesn't get to, to fall, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, a long time ago, I, I realized that there was a micro water cycle that was more important than the macro water cycle. And the micro water cycle is, is moisture stored in plants. It's moisture stored in fungi. It's the spores from fungi causing rain uh, drops to um, actually be created. It's, it's the evapotranspiration from plants it's the um uh it's you know it can literally um be this water within millimeters of the soil to centimeters from the soil to to higher but but it creates its own um weather pattern and uh, there were two areas around the world one in south africa and one in the united states where the research showed when they planted more plants the actual precipitation increased. Um, and uh, so, so what I noticed as we were turning the deserts back into grasslands, we noticed that it hasn't rained for six weeks, but there's still dew on the ground. How's that possible? That's the micro water cycle that you're seeing in, in evidence. You know, when there's a rainfall event and you've got bare soil and 85% of the rain evaporates often within as little as half an hour of the precipitation event. That vapor, where's that vapor gone? Um, you know, that's, that vapor um, you know, either dissipates back into the atmosphere or it's absorbed um, uh, into the micro water cycle. Um, when I was in the deserts of, of, of the Middle East, um, I found a lot of plants that were catching the dew overnight and then the dew was funneling down the leaves 
And then I dug down and about a meter underground, I found a little ball of fungi that was holding and trapping a, a ball of water. So the fungi was holding the water against the root of the plant that had been captured from dew. Well, that's the microwater cycle. Um, and I think it's a far more uh, important uh, cycle um, and one that most scientists and definitely all school teachers are blissfully unaware of. And I think we need to pay attention to it um, because I honestly believe the reason two thirds of the desert of the planet has turned to desert is because we didn't understand just how vital the micro water cycle is. Um, so uh, what I have learned about the water, micro water cycle we have to protect the top of the soil surface from ultraviolet light and heat. And we have to ensure that we've got a healthy fungal network. Um, and with those two things that triggers healthy plants, and then we can maintain a healthy water, uh, micro water cycle. If that's true, that then there's a whole lot more we can do locally about climate. We don't have to blame our um, you know, ecological degradation or droughts and floods on what's going on way out there or way up there. We can say, you know, the, the plant matter matters, the ecosystem matters, what's on the ground and in the ground matters for the climate. We will never solve climate change until we solve the microwater cycle. The two are, are, are hand in hand. And uh, droughts and floods are symptoms of non-functioning microwater cycles. Right. And in the, uh, you know, the climate media that I've seen, there, you know, whenever you have a, a, a flood or a drought, it is blamed on the, the global climate uh, instead of acknowledging that much of flooding has to do with what we've done to the land and much of drought and desertification has to do with what we've done to the land locally and regionally, irrespective of the total carbon content of the atmosphere, that kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, I, I'd caution you to, to, you know, to even use the words, what we've done to the land. No, what we've done to the micro water cycle. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah we've destroyed the micro water cycle. Which and you're you describing the micro water cycle as, you know, it, it, it not only happens locally, but it happens within organisms and within yeah. communities and, and within these tiny ecosystems that it might exist in a log or under the ground, et cetera. Exactly. So back to Southern California, you're proposing, uh, and, and what you propose to do with the you know, the turning desert into grasslands, you're proposing that people invest in a business enterprise with the expectation of making a profit. In other words, a cattle business and a you know, land restoration business. Uh, how does that work and what is the business model? Well, firstly, I will be able to tell you everything you need to know about cows. Um, but when it comes to uh, the business model for, um, uh, for the rest of the industry, um, I need to admit I'm out of my depth. Um, uh, while all my friends were studying to be lawyers and accountants and bankers, I was studying in the bush. Um, so I could upskill myself and teach myself all of that stuff. But to be quite honest, I don't want to bother. I more want to attract people who want to save the climate mm -hmm. um, uh, to, to get involved. 
Now, having said that, um, as a dumb cowboy, um, I will tell you that if you've got a piece of desert land and you turn it into a functioning grassland with flowing rivers and everything like that, uh, just human nature, it has to go up in value. Mm -hmm. So let's say, you know, let's say you buy uh, um, uh, 500 acres for a million dollars. Yeah, that's $2,000 an acre. And you put a uh, one acre of that 500 acres, you put a house on that, a very nice house, but now it's surrounded with 500 acres of lovely, pristine grassland, you know, with shrubs and, and deer and elk and pronghorn and, uh, and quail. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think, you know, two hours from Los Angeles, nice warm climate like that, you know, able to keep your horses and stuff. I'm not sure, but I think that proper property would probably become worth about $10 million without blinking. Mm. So, um, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is your average price that you buy steers at the market is anywhere between $800 and $1,200 per head. Um, let's round that off and say $1,000 per head. Well, if you look at Cargill and JBS, their average retail price for an animal after it's been through a feedlot is between $8,000 and $8,600 per head. Um, so, uh, yeah, so you've got the increase in value because um, instead of doing a feedlot based on corn, we would be doing a grass, gr uh, biodiverse um, grass um, uh, feeding program. So you would have the increase in value because you've now got a lot of grass-fed animals that are ready for the local market. And you've taken a light steer and turned it into a heavy steer. So you've got the weight gain that's increased in value. Um, and if we just use the current market figures, you've taken a product from $1,000 to $8,000. I think that there's a little bit of a profit margin in there, even if we do it badly. Mm. Um, I mean, even if we do it badly, but, but more importantly, now, instead of shipping that beef from Texas mm -hmm. all the way to California, you've got Brawley is 30 minutes drive away and Los Angeles is two hours drive away. So, uh, so you've now got a locally produced healthy meat product that instead of coming from a CAFO where it's pollution and animal cruelty and, and all those horrible things. I mean, we just had 10,000 black cat, cattle die in Kansas. Uh, instead of going from that, you know, horrible model, now you've got animals out, on, out in the desert on pasture, under shade, with chickens, and they're moving forward each day, and they've got unlimited gra you know, grazing and unlimited water, um, and they're living their best life, um, and they're two hours away. I think the story is a better story. I think the product will be a better product. Um, and I think the profit margins would probably be higher. Um, so, uh, but there are so many different ways to fund a company. You know, do you do an IPO? Do you do, you know, there's all this language, there's all this jargon of the people in the financial industry that uh, they don't understand my jargon about dung and urine and microorganisms and to quite, Frankly, I don't really understand their jargon, mm -hmm. but I'm sure that just as a dumb cowboy, I think these figures work. Um, and, uh, and so I'm talking to various groups and people 
to see what would be the best way forward. Um, and uh, because uh, just on a thumb suck, if we do get to 150,000 acres a year and 700,000 cattle, um, you don't have to be too smart um, to see that it's quite a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a large um, uh, business that it grows into very quickly. Um, and so I think investors would be like to be involved in something that is profitable, solving global climate change, creating beautiful wildlife habitat, creating employment for people for the next hundred years, um, cooling the soil, cooling the air going into Los Angeles. Um, I, I mean, you know, what's the downside? This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. And then when you restore land, it's natural that wildlife will return. Uh, and I'm, you may agree with me that I, I think we've been taught that wildlife and people are kind of two separate things and they're always going to be antagonistic or they're always going to displace each other. I'm of the opinion that we could have abundant wildlife and have people living in abundance as well. Um, so in that regard, what are some of the more impressive things you've seen in terms of the return of wildlife to an area that has been, that was degraded and has been restored? Well, uh, obviously, um, uh, the, the ranch I managed for the Africa Center for Holistic Management in Zimbabwe, that takes the cake. So we went from 5,000 acres of severely desertified land. Um, our first year, we borrowed 60 head of cattle, um, and we could barely find food for 60 head of cattle on 5,000 acres. Uh, the next year, we jumped to 350 cattle and then 600 cattle. And the year after, over 2,000 wild Cape buffalo joined us, over mm. 500 elephants. Who knows how many impala, kudu, sable, waterbuck, you name it. But basically, uh, a lions. Um, the, the lion research is from Wanky National Park, which is 350 square miles said that there were more lions on Deep Ngombi, 5,000 acres, than there were in uh, Wanky National Park. Because when all the wildlife left the National Park to come and graze our forage, which we wanted them to do, uh, the predators had to follow them. So that is hands down the most impressive. Now, uh, Deep Ngombi has incredible wildlife numbers in the dry season. And in the wet season, you won't find any game. Um, primarily, yeah, because it, you know, it dissipates, it spreads out again, and also because we would chase it off if we saw it, because we want the forage to grow in the wet season. Mm. So um, that that's the best. But you know, uh, ranches in the Chihuahuan Desert in Mexico have gone from bare soil for as far as the eye could see to big herds of deer and bear and uh, turkeys. And um, you know, it doesn't uh, it doesn't matter where in the world we do this. There's the, the principle and a saying I came up with many years ago is life begets life. More life begets more life. And we really have to understand that uh, it's, it's all connected. As you get more photosynthesis happening, well, there's more food. 
as there's more food, well, now there's more, you know, the food is animals, you know, more bacteria, more nematodes, more earthworms, more ground birds, more everything. So, uh, so we've never had uh, people start managing holistically and, uh, and, and, and healing deserts where we didn't end up with significantly more animals. Now, in Africa, I had lions, leopards, cheetah, civet, serval, jackal, probably a couple of others. But I mean, I had so many predators. And uh, I, I would like to say we didn't lose any animals to predators, but that's not true. We once lost about five lambs to a hyena who had no teeth. And so she was desperate and mm -hmm. took the risk. Um, but, uh, but by, you know, um, you know, you can run huge herds of livestock with packs of wolves, with bear, with, um, with lions, leopards, cheetah. Does your management change? Absolutely. But can we figure out how to all get along? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I hear you saying that we can grow food under circumstances that actually create more space, more habitat for wildlife. And that's why they come as opposed to seeing the wildlife as the, the enemy or a threat as opposed, you know, as opposed to seeing if, if it's a carnivore, then it's a threat to your herd, you know? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, we've got a good example of, of, of how we've got to manage. So in California, they, they outlawed shooting um, cougars, mountain lions, because they're pretty kitties. The problem was they forgot that cougars have eight or nine kittens. Now, so the population went from one cougar to eight, eight to 64. 64, you see how quickly the numbers increased. Right. Now, deer only have one fawn hmm. per year. So deer went from one to one yeah. to two. Only problem was there were now 64, 1,000, 3,000 cougars all trying to eat that one deer fawn. And the deer populations have absolutely plummeted because we weren't managing the entire ecosystem. We tried to pick a favorite because it was cute. Um, and, and that was foolish. Um, uh, however, um, you know, and people say, well, what about those desert species? Um, you know, if, if we turn it all back into grassland, what will they do? Well, you, you have to back off and think about it. Those desert species have existed for millions of years. Now, we know historically these areas were grasslands. So those desert species that now cover the whole desert, they were living when it wasn't a desert. The difference is now they're eking out an existence in the desert but if the desert ecosystem becomes more abundant, mm -hmm. now they're not eking out an existence. So, for example, a horny toad might now be in the flat land looking for food. But if there's dung beetles and, and grasshoppers and everything everywhere, his habitat goes from the flat land looking, desperately looking for food to now the rock mm -hmm. in the middle of the grass is where he sits. And he sits on the rock and all this food comes to him. So the, 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 the horny toad is still there. It's just his niche within the desert changes. Mm -hmm. The rattlesnake is still there, 
except now he has abundant mice to feed on. The, you know, uh, all the desert species are still there. They just have a better ecosystem in which to survive. Doing this is not going to make things worse for the desert species. It's going to make it better for the desert species. And the radical notion <laughs> in this that many people are not aware of is that if you rotate your grazing animals properly, then it has a regenerative effect. Well, yes. Um, so, so the first step is the biological carpet to trigger life to start growing. Once the biological carpet is established, then phase two, which is those, you know, call it 500 acre ranchettes, um, for want of a better um, uh, methodology, phase two is, okay, this was grassland, humans turned it to a desert. We've now turned it back to a grassland. What do we need to do to prevent it returning to a desert? Now, in holistic management, um, we have examples of ranches that were fixed, that management cha uh, ownership changed on, and they reverted to deserts. So we know that this can happen. Once you change management, you have to then maintain the, the, the brittle environment ecosystem. So you go from a, a kind of a portable feedlot operation um, uh, with young animals that you're feeding up to sell into the cities, and then you morph it once you've got grassland and, and legumes and shrubs growing, then you morph it into a maintenance herd, which is your breeding cows. Um, and the maintenance herds will obviously start small and then we'll be allowed to just keep breeding up and breeding up. And uh, figures we've got from a, a, a project that was proposed for Australia um, showed that a $30 million investment um, in, in a cattle herd over a 20-year period, just with exponential growth, with one cow, seven years later, there's two... So, you know, exponential growth, um, a, a $30 million investment in, in cattle um, grew to over a billion dollars in, in, in a 20-year period. Um, so people don't understand. You can't, it's fascinating. Look at the graphs. It's kind of flat, and then at year seven, it starts to go up, and then it goes up and up and up and up till it's going vertically. So... Um, so the future people, and that's why our project is deserts to grasslands, feeding the future. Because step one is to turn the desert into grassland using livestock. Step two is to feed the future population of the world by having these herds keep growing exponentially to support humanity well into the future. I'm talking one, two, three, four hundred years into the future. So two parts of the program. And so one effect of this restoration process, one effect of holistic management is to uh, cool the desert. And you're saying that that could have a positive impact on the climate of Los Angeles and San Diego by mitigating some of the heat extremes, tempering some of the heat extremes. So Los Angeles has recently appointed uh, a woman named Marta Segura as the chief heat officer. 
the role of the chief heat officer is to respond to heat emergencies and also to prevent heat emergencies. What would you like to tell Marta Segura? Um, the, the, we have a solution. Come and talk to me. I mean, literally, we have a solution. And let's say, um, let's say that Los Angeles has a uh, has ten million people in. Um, I think that's a thumbsuck that uh, I've heard thrown around. So let's say this. Uh, um, so I need just to get um, a well-financed pilot project going. I need a hundred million dollars, um, and then I divide it by um, ten million people, and we have a grand total of ten dollars each. Um, I mean, it's it's literally ludicrous to think that for the cost of a hamburger, the cost of a hamburger, we could launch this project. We could show its success on the first 5,000 acres. The government of California controls the other one and a half million acres we need to work on. It would make a profit the entire time um, and, and, and it would get going. But it's, it's this... Uh, it's this uh, fear of the unknown is generally what prevents humans making change, except for when they're desperate. I personally hope that Los Angeles is getting desperate enough that they're willing to talk to to a, a what do we call people like me, a, a, a fraud, a quack, a, you know, someone who's proposing something that just sounds ridiculous. But uh, you know, we've been doing this for, you know, in my life, at least 30 years successfully um, around the world. And it's doable. It's financially viable um, for as little as $10 per citizens of, of, of Los Angeles. We could launch a pilot on 5,000 acres or 6,000 acres, show people, and the scientists would be part of the team, you know, come and measure the temperatures off the ground, come and see what happens after the first rainfall, convince people on a large enough um, you know, a pilot that, okay, yeah, we want to go from 5,000 up to 150,000. Probably wouldn't even need to put any more money in because by that time, all the investors would want to climb on board. Um, so uh, what I would tell to the heat czar is, please come and talk to me. I'm, I, I'm not frightening. I don't bite. Um, and, and we actually can solve this problem for the long term. So you, you, we, you have a solution, but it would require... Um, I can hear you again. Okay. Yep. You, so you have a solution, but it would require looking in different places from where many people are looking today. Uh, yes. Look, it's so frustrating to me. Um, like I said, all my friends became bankers, lawyers, accountants, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody that I know prays at the God of technology at the feet of the God of technology. I'm sorry, but technology cannot solve this. This is a natural system process. This is understanding nature. This is understanding gravity. If you drop a rock in New York City, it hits the ground. If you drop a rock in Los Angeles, it hits the ground. People can grasp that concept. The same applies. Plants in New York create oxygen. Plants in California create oxygen. It's a universal principle. Ground cover on soil 
cools the ground. In New York, ground cover on the ground in California cools the ground. These are universal principles. We're not doing anything clever. All we're doing is using the holistic management decision-making framework to analyze a problem and come up with a potential solution. We've been doing it for a lot of years around the world and uh, you know, there's several million acres under holistic management globally and everyone is reporting the same results. I just, because of the X prize, decided to say, how can we push this envelope right to the far end and reverse engineer a project that can offer hope to humanity? And I think if we can convince the czar from Los Angeles, um, then, uh, uh, then, yeah, that publicity will then impact the people in Dubai will say, we can do it. The people in, in Egypt will say, we can do it. The people in the outback of Australia will say, we can do it. And then we have actually begun to impact global climate change. That's the message we've got to get out. Covered ground is cooler than bare ground. Mm. How do we get ground covered and make money doing it and support communities you know, and feed the future? of humanity. You know, we've already got 1 billion hungry souls on the planet. In 25, well, in 20 years now, I've been doing this for five years. In 20 years time, there will be another billion hungry souls on the planet. That's 2 billion. The one thing that causes war and conflict is hungry people. Mm. We've got 5 million hungry people who've crossed into America in the last year. Mm. You don't think they're coming here because um, they wanted to leave home because they were comfortable at home. Right. No, they were desperate for resources. And they perceive that America's got the resources. We already have a 800 million acres of desert in America. The U.S. Department of Agriculture tells us that 200 more million acres are going to be desert within 20 years. That will be 1 billion acres of desert. Our project can turn 150,000 acres per city per year from desert back into grassland. So, you know, it'll be a tiny pinprick, but if we get going, you know, um, now the other thing about this is when we turn deserts back into grasslands, we can stop deforesting because currently we deforest to grow grass to feed cows. How about we get the cows into the deserts and let the forest stay as forests? more uh, global climate change assistance. So I, I, that's why and, I persevere. I hope, I hope uncommon common sense can prevail. And we can move forward on this with a minimal investment. Uh, yes, literally a minimal investment. Uh, how can people follow you? And so uh, the, um, the project's uh, website is fixeddeserts.com. You can put a plural or a singular, they both work, or you can get really complicated and d2gftf.com, um, but uh, fixed deserts um, rolls off the, uh, off the tongue a bit easier. Um, and uh, um, and on, on our website, we have a contact sheet uh, where we're trying to um, find people who are interested who can assist us. 
Um, so that's probably the best site um, uh, for, the, for this project, just to keep all the information in one place. Well, thanks uh, so much for joining me. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Roger Savory. To learn more, go to fixdeserts.com. I've been a climate reporter for four years. I just recorded episode 348 of the Climate Report. I've read all of the Green New Deals. I've read the local clean and renewable energy resolutions. I'm keeping up with the legislation that's coming out of Congress that promises to, to spend $350 billion on technological solutions. And I agree with Roger Savory that we're not dealing with a technological problem. We're not dealing with a deficit of technology. The deficit lies with our understanding of nature and our willingness to work with nature to solve problems like climate change, like the decline in biodiversity. We are in our infancy in understanding soil. All of the components of the soil food web, the bacteria, the protozoa, the fungi, the nematodes, the microarthropods, and how they work with plants and animals to create ecosystems and functioning water cycles and cool microclimates. We're in our infancy in understanding these things, but we know plenty to get started. We know plenty to cover the ground with plants to take deserts and turn them into grasslands. And it's like Roger Savory said, covered ground, ground covered with plants is always cooler than bare ground. We know enough to get started. Roger's initiative is called Deserts to Grasslands Feed the Future. That says it all. We need to take deserts, and turn it into grasslands so we can feed the future, so we can feed humans and we can feed nature. If we feed nature, nature will feed us. It's a great deal.